الجزيرة بودكاست Protests have rocked Israel for weeks, some of the biggest in its history. Growing turmoil in Israel, fiery protests erupting in the streets. Israeli demonstrators clash with police and step up their fight against government plans to weaken the Israeli Supreme Court. Many of these protests are against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing government, the farthest right in Israel yet. A week ago Monday, he postponed a major reform planned to the judiciary. Protests have died down for now, but threats of unrest have been growing. It's very extreme, nationalist, racist, religious, even fascist government. And Israelis aren't the only ones reacting. The Arab world, and even Israel's strongest ally, the United States, also took notice. So how are Israel's alliances holding up now with this right-wing government? I'm Malika Biral, and this is The Take. Today, I'm talking to someone who has been following the ins and outs of what's been happening in the region for his whole life, going back to the formation of the State of Israel. My name is Khalil Jashan, and I'm the executive director of Arab Center Washington, D.C., an American think tank. And my interest in the Middle East goes back to my birth (laughs) uh, about 74 plus years ago. I was born in Palestine, and I was a few days old uh, when the conflict started. So let's just jump right in. Israel is seeing some of the biggest protests in its history. And when things happen in Israel, reactions tend to reverberate throughout the rest of the region. What is it about this current Israeli government that is bringing people out? The current government in Israel, aside from the obvious, People keep describing it as probably the most extreme right-wing government in the history of Israel. That's a well-known fact. Everybody admits that, including members of their government. But it also exposes all kinds of issues that were hidden in the past. Israel has had a reputation going back to 1948 as a Jewish, liberal, somewhat progressive, left-of-center, ran by Mapai and Mapam parties that no longer exist. Some cabinet members today do not object to the adjective fascist. They say we're proud fascist. The finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, he says, I'm a fascist homophobe and I'm proud of it. We're not putting words in their mouth. This is a serious turning point, not only in the history of Israel, but in the history of those who support Israel. So the fact that this government is so far right has had effects not just on Israelis, as we've seen on the streets, but on Israeli relationships around the world, the UAE, Jordan, and the United States. Let's start with the Arab world. There was one incident that set off a chain of events. Israel's finance minister has sparked a backlash after saying there's no such thing as the Palestinian people. At a conference in Paris on Sunday, Bezalel Smotrich described Palestinians as an invention of the past century. Talk to me about the reaction to that. So countries today, like the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, the two countries that started a peace treaty with Israel, like Jordan uh, and Egypt, 
These countries actually began to show concern immediately after last year's elections in Israel, before that statement. Mm -hmm. Because Netanyahu is not new. People know what he stands for. They know his Machiavellian politics. They know his radicalism. However, they didn't want, mostly for pride, they didn't want to admit that it was a mistake to have normalized with Israel, knowing that 70, 80, 90% of their people object to it. Arab Center has something called Arab Opinion Index. The last time we did it, in 2022, we did 14 countries. We basically interviewed 33,000 people. It's one of the largest surveys in the world. Wow. And the majority of the people said no to normalizing with Israel or recognizing Israel. But some of these governments, they did it in spite of their people's will. So that's the reason for the embarrassment right now. When Smotrich words came out, there is no such thing as Palestinian people. Palestinians are an Arab invention. They're afraid that will open their people's eyes. They are not real. Who the heck has he been fighting with for the past 74 years? Ghosts? I mean, Palestinians are not ghosts. And he knows that. But politically, that's what put these countries on the spot. Specifically, there have been moves some more dramatic than others. The Parliament of Jordan voting to recommend the expulsion of Israel's ambassador. Jordanian lawmakers voted to expel the Israeli ambassador. Mr. Smotrich was speaking at a memorial honoring a very extreme right-wing supporter of Israeli radical groups, including his. And on the podium, they posted a map of the Middle East we haven't seen for a while. That's a map that shows not only full Palestine, but it shows Jordan, it shows part of Syria, it shows part of Lebanon, as Israel that they would like to have a, you know, Israeli control over. So Jordan, as one of the first countries to have peace with Israel back in the 90s, was uniquely or personally offended, if you will. He questioned the legitimacy of Jordan, and that's why this anger was shown by parliamentarians in Jordan who probably would have preferred to, on that day, sever relations. And it wasn't only Jordan. In 2020, the UAE was one of several Arab countries who signed a normalization agreement with Israel. And since then, business has been booming. But this statement triggered a reaction. More on that after the break. Hello, I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. We carry on exploring the lives of history's most notable figures, from Rosa Parks to Pol Pot. We meet the people who changed the way we think about our world and those who left it marked by their infamy. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts. I've been speaking with Khalil Jahshan, director of the Arab Center in Washington, D.C., about how Israel's far-right government is affecting its relationships outside Israel. Just recently, the UAE condemned Israel by saying their right-wing rhetoric contradicts moral and human values. The UAE is considering reduction of its diplomatic presence in the Jewish state. So I asked Khalil what he's seeing from the leadership of the UAE now. We saw the UAE send a senior aide to Israel. This was around March 22nd to reportedly 
warn Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government against transgressions. We've also heard in Israeli media that an Emirati delegation that included Foreign Minister Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nahyan was due to arrive in Tel Aviv. So clearly there are efforts here to show their displeasure. I know Sheikh Abdullah personally, and I have great respect for him as a person, but I'm surprised, actually, (laughs) that he even made that trip, having discussed these issues with him in previous incarnations over the years. The Emirates perceived the change in Israel as a threat, as a potential embarrassment for themselves, uh, having done so much normalization. It could work on some rational entities. I'm not sure it works on... Israel under its current leadership, even Israel in general, but definitely not under its current leadership. Hmm. So I hear you on the embarrassment that they potentially could be feeling, but I wonder how much of the UAE's reaction to this is actually about the recent deal that Saudi Arabia signed with Iran, which was brokered by China. Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to re-establish diplomatic relations and reopen embassies after a seven-year diplomatic breach which has fueled tensions in the Gulf. Do you think there's any relation? There is a relationship. As you know, the two countries are very close, Riyadh and Abu Dhabi, and they have coordinated many policies together. However, there are actually some serious disagreements, including, I would say, the speed with which normalization with Israel has taken place. Even though I'm not as close to this particular leadership now, I was to the previous one. I knew the king personally, King Salman. I met with him quite a few times over the years. And I have great respect for his historic position on Palestine, which he and I have discussed many times. And I appreciate all the effort and work he has done. But now the policy is different. The Saudi current Saudi leadership, they are not objecting necessarily to the substance of the policy, but they are objecting to the speed with which it's being done without getting any gains back. Mm. So the Saudi position still seems closer to the early 90s. Yes, to normalization with Israel, but after peace with the Palestinians. Now, the agreement with Iran, maybe Abu Dhabi feels that uh, Saudi Arabia has rushed into that agreement because they've been trying to do that themselves. Maybe they feel kind of left behind. Well, before that deal was signed, the Saudi-Iran deal, there was talk of a different agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Saudi Arabia wants to normalize ties with Israel, although the move will take time. Of course, as you mentioned, Saudi Arabia's official policy is normalization after the Palestinian issue has been settled. So for that to have happened, that would have been a very big deal. It has not. Instead, Saudi Arabia signed this deal with Iran. Where do you think that leaves Israel and Saudi Arabia, though? Many people in Israel are basically saying that Netanyahu, who, before he won this last election, he kept kind of praising his own efforts on potential diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia. Now he has wasted that opportunity. It's making Saudi Arabia a bit more cautious. Israel is upset because it has essentially exposed its selfish motive. They wanted the U.S. to cover their rear end, and they wanted the Arabs to pay the bill. Now they're not going to have that, neither. Interesting. So let's just talk about the United States right now, Israel's strongest ally. This past week, U.S. President Joe Biden voiced some concern. Like many 
strong supporters of Israel, I'm very concerned. And I'm concerned that they get this straight. They cannot continue on this road. Which is a lot coming from a president who has said, more than once, if Israel did not exist, we would have to create it, meaning the United States. What shifted for Biden, and where do U.S.-Israel relations stand now? I don't think he is yet at a point where he believes Israel has made a mistake. He doesn't think Israel makes mistakes. That's what he means when, when he says, I'm a proud Zionist. Fine. I mean, he's entitled to that. We live in a free country. You know why Biden made that statement? Because so many people in the Jewish community are making that statement. He is concerned about, essentially, an internal family fight within the Jewish community. He's not concerned about U.S.-Israel. He's not concerned about Palestinians. Hmm. I think he is concerned about the debate taking place in the Jewish community, and he sees them as not only the main support for Israel, but that main support for him, a candidate for re-election, remember. Does any of this change the situation in Israel? We've had this long discussion about what Arab states feel, what the United States feels. Does it matter to Israel or to the Israeli government that its support might be wavering, particularly in the Middle East? It does. Trust me, what's happening in Israel will make a, a big difference. When I look back and see, for example, the competition between Democrats and Republicans in this country as to who is a better supporter of Israel, it used to be 90 plus percent of, of Democrats. Now it's probably less. I don't know. Some people say 70, some people say 80, but let's say it's 80. Okay, so that's a drop, a serious drop. So in other words, support for Israel, which was sacrosanct for so many years in this country, is becoming a partisan issue. It's not accidental that the governor of Florida, DeSantis, announced he's heading to the region to benefit from it personally as a candidate. Hmm. That's not to the advantage of just peace in the region. In Israel, it's even more dramatic. Weeks of massive protests, an estimated 300,000 citizens marching Saturday, many alleging a power grab that could make Israel an autocracy. Hundreds of thousands. They reached, what, 500,000 a couple weeks ago. Massive. This is the equivalent, uh, Malika, of what? I would say 18 million people in this country. Imagine 18 million demonstrating in this country for something. It's a huge uh, number. But democracy cannot exclude 21% of the population. Could you imagine 18 million people in this country demonstrating by excluding all the African-American and all the Latino communities in this country from whatever endeavor they are demonstrating for? It will be automatically described as racist, exclusivist and, and destructive. But that's exactly what's happening in Israel. And I'm not talking about people under occupation, the millions of Palestinians. I'm talking about the two million Israeli citizens who happen to be Palestinians. Why aren't they involved? The problem we're facing in Israel, Israel remains a democracy for Jews and a Jewish state for Arabs. That's not a working formula. I'm glad you took it there because I think to the casual viewer who hears tens of thousands of protesters are out in the streets in Israel, they might think it has something to do with Palestinians. But in fact, it does not. And we've mentioned that as far as Israel has been concerned, the Palestinians aren't a big factor in anything of what we've been discussing right now. 
Where do the Palestinians stand and where do their rights stand right now? Dead end. I hate to say that, but uh, frankly, all these developments in Israel, whether they succeed or not in protecting democracy, uh, they are not related at all. They are not related to equality in Israel. As far as the other Palestinians in under occupation, how can a country be democratic and continue to hold on for 56 years to a foreign occupation, depriving people of their right to self-determination? Five million people. So that's where the contradiction lies and the debate that's taking place in Israel, unfortunately, is not dealing with this issue. That's what the real issue is. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Chloe K. Lee, Nagin Oliai, Ashish Mahotra, Miranda Lynn, Khalid Sultan, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Adam Abugad and Munira Al-Tosari are our engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Coming up on Wednesday, news of the first indictment of a president of the United States and what the rest of the world thinks of it. Be sure to subscribe to The Take wherever you get your podcasts. Or if social is more your thing, find us at AJE Podcasts on Instagram and Twitter. We'll be back.